Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In this episode, our topic is breathing. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. This is a quote from William Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, one of the Bard's most famous love poems. It both acknowledges that breathing is a requisite for life, and it also serves as a starting point for our deeper dive into the anatomy and physiology of breathing. Take a big breath in. Hold briefly. Now exhale. This seemingly unremarkable act occurs about, give or take, 12 times per minute, 720 times per hour, 17,280 times per day. And if you live until the ripe old age of 80, this works out to roughly over 500 million times during your lifespan. And this doesn't even count the practice breathing that occurs while you are developing fetus. While fetuses do not breathe to acquire oxygen, they get that from mom's placenta, periodic fetal breathing is detectable as early as 10 weeks of gestation and ramps up in frequency close to the time of birth when newborns must be able to expel the amniotic fluid they've been breathing and quickly adapt to terrestrial life. We are hardwired to breathe, and the mechanisms required for this essential act must be good to go from the first moments of life. In part one of this podcast episode, I'd like to explore with you the how and why of breathing. In part two of this episode, we will focus on the physiology of a common breathing disorder, namely asthma, and how it can be treated. We first need to do a little clarification. The term respiration can have two different meanings. On the one hand, it can refer to cellular respiration, that is, the consumption of oxygen by your cells and the release of carbon dioxide and other metabolic waste products. The act of breathing is ultimately in the service of cellular respiration. On a more macro scale, respiration in general can refer to the act of breathing and exchange of gases in your lungs. If you want to parse things just a little bit further, you can refer to just the movement of air into and out of your lungs. And then, ventilation is the most appropriate term. So let's start with ventilation. And please try this. Place your hands along the sides of your ribcage, fingers pointing obliquely towards your navel. Now, take a deep breath and let it go. Have you done that? What you would have felt if you'd done it is your chest wall moving up and out and your belly rising as the diaphragm, the large muscle separating your abdomen from your thorax, flattens out, dropping the floor of the chest cavity. Together, the contraction of your external intercostal muscles, those between your ribs or costae, and the diaphragm work to increase the size of the thoracic cavity. This creates an outward drag on the sac that surrounds your lungs and pulls the lungs outwards. This, in turn, creates a momentary negative pressure inside your lungs, which draws air in. Okay, fine. That seems fairly straightforward. Inspiration or inhalation is an active process requiring muscle activity. But what about when you exhale? If inspiration can be thought of as active, exhalation is typically passive. Pushing air out of the lungs doesn't, for the most part, require muscles to contract. 
Picture what happens when you release air from a balloon. The stretched balloon has elastic forces which cause the balloon to contract, generating a positive pressure inside the balloon and pushing air out. This is not very different from what happens in the lungs during expiration. Your inspiratory muscles relax and your elastic connective tissues recoil, generating a positive pressure pushing air out. But is exhalation always passive? Well, no, and to demonstrate that, try standing up and jogging on the spot for a bit. This time, have one hand on your tummy and the other hand on the side of your neck. Seriously, go ahead, try it. I'll wait. Now stop. What you would have felt with your hand on your belly as your respiratory rate goes up is your abdominal muscles, the oblique muscles and the rectus abdominis muscles down the center line of your belly, contract to force more air out. As well, a set of deeper intercostal muscles, called the internal intercostals, are also recruited to push more air out during exhalation. They draw the rib cage inwards. So, during exercise, exhalation becomes more active, that is, requires muscles. What about the hand on your neck? You should have felt some accessory muscles of your neck contracting, namely the sternomastoid and the scalenes, which is an effort by your body to try to expand your thorax a wee bit more and take more air in. So, keep these concepts and seemingly random factoids in mind when we get to part two of this episode. The bigger picture is that we need oxygen for metabolism, for life itself, and the movement of air serves to facilitate oxygen exchange in the principal exchange units of the lungs, the alveoli. Alveoli are very thin-walled, which makes them ideal for allowing the differences in the partial pressures of oxygen in the air versus that in the lung capillaries to facilitate diffusion or movement of oxygen out of air into blood. Turns out, oxygen doesn't dissolve well in fluid, so it's picked up by the protein hemoglobin in red blood cells. Once oxygen-enriched blood cells leave the lungs and enter the tissues of the rest of the body, say the brain, for example, the oxygen is released. So, exactly how does hemoglobin release oxygen to tissues? I mean, you need to pick it up in the lungs, that is, oxygen needs to bind to hemoglobin in the lungs, but then when it gets to the cells of your body, it must be released. And cells in the rest of your body are always consuming oxygen. The byproducts of this consumption of oxygen by cells are carbon dioxide and acids. In other words, products of cellular respiration. And here's the neat trick. The extra acidity and heat generated by metabolism in the tissues promotes the release of oxygen from hemoglobin so that oxygen can get to the cells where it's needed. Those same conditions in the tissues also allow hemoglobin to serve a dual role. It can pick up acid released by these cells as well as carbon dioxide and take it away and eventually release it in the alveoli of the lungs. So that was a brief how of breathing. What about the why? What controls all of this from the moment of birth? Well, I'm glad you asked. Essentially, the brain is calling most of the shots with some help from sensory nerve endings in your lungs. Different clusters of neurons called nuclei in a part of the brain called the brainstem regulate both inspiration and expiration. A grouping of neurons or nuclei comprising the 
apneustic center sends signals via motor neurons to your muscles of inspiration, including those external intercostals in the diaphragm we just talked about, causing them to contract. In contrast, another set of neurons close by, which comprise the pneumotaxic center, inhibit the apneustic neurons, stopping their signals and thus halting inhalation. Taken together, the apneustic and pneumotaxic regions of the brain regulate the rate and depth of breathing. But this still begs another question, what activates these different clusters of neurons? Let's tackle what triggers the apneustic or inspiratory center first. Remember how cells release carbon dioxide and acids during cellular respiration? Turns out that both of these act as signals which regulate respiration. In your body, you have specialized cells called chemoreceptors, which can sense carbon dioxide and or low oxygen levels. These chemoreceptors are found in your carotid arteries and in the aorta, the major vessel carrying blood away from the heart. When chemoreceptors sense high CO2 levels, increased acidity, or low oxygen, they trigger nerve impulses carrying information back to the brain to stimulate the apneustic neurons. Et voila, the inspiratory muscles get activated. As well, given that the brain has such a critical need for oxygen, another set of chemoreceptors exist in the medulla, called the ventral respiratory group. And these sense, mainly, acidity, but also trigger inspiratory neurons in the apneustic center. You may be wondering, what activates the pneumotaxic neurons? And why don't my lungs just keep expanding? Well, there's a good reason for that. Your lungs and your thoracic wall have specialized nerve endings called stretch receptors, which sense, well, stretch. These sensory nerve endings send information back to the brain via what's called the vagus nerve, and vagus translates from Latin to wanderer, and more about that in a bit. And the vagus goes to a part of the brain called the dorsal respiratory group of neurons, which acts in much the same way as the pneumotaxic center. The increased stretch activates a feedback loop called the Herring-Brewer reflex, and that inhibits inspiratory neurons. Both the dorsal respiratory neurons and the pneumotaxic neurons, if they're activated, also can increase the rate of breathing. This kind of makes sense when you realize that by limiting inspiration, you're also shortening expiration, and essentially the respiratory cycle is decreased. There's always more that we could or perhaps should discuss in the interest of providing a more complete picture of the seemingly simple but, as you've no doubt noticed by now, inherently complex system. I hope you're okay with accepting that what we've just covered are some of the main elements of how breathing is regulated. It's mainly regulated by the brain with feedback from chemoreceptors and stretch receptors. So for now, let's keep it simple and apply some of this information to answering some of your burning questions. Burning question number one, what is a cough? Now that is a good question. Let's look at the mechanics of a cough. It's a sudden explosive release of air under pressure. It all begins with the stimulation of a complex reflex arc. There are sensory endings in your trachea, bronchi, and other parts of the air-conducting pathways of your lungs. And these can respond to mechanical stimulation, such as heat, acid, or chemical irritants, such as capsaicin, and that's the hot stuff in chili peppers. Once triggered, these sensory nerve endings send signals to the brain via the vagus nerve. 
Hmm, there's that vagus nerve again. Where does this wanderer go? Well, it goes to the cough center of the medulla, and there is such a thing. From there, several nerves carry outbound signals. The vagus, which is actually a two-way street, and the phrenic and the spinal nerves go to the diaphragm, to the abdominal muscles, and to the intercostal muscles, as well as to the top of your windpipe, the larynx. And then a bunch of events occur. The glottis or opening at the top of your larynx closes, and the expiratory muscles contract. Because the top of the larynx is closed, pressure in your airways increases, and after a point, the glottis suddenly opens and, whoosh, out comes the air, and whatever debris was hanging about in your airways. Now, coughing is super useful for getting irritants out of the lungs. But one follow-on question could be, can you cough too much? Well, if you've ever had a prolonged spell of coughing, you'll know that A, this can make it hard to breathe, B, it starts to hurt your throat, and C, it uses a lot of energy. You get tired. But did you know that, in extreme cases, the force of your diaphragm contracting repeatedly as you cough can actually cause a tear between your esophagus and your stomach? Such an injury is called a Mallory-Weiss tear and occurs as the diaphragm flattens out and pushes down on the stomach below. There are several drugs which can be used to treat a cough, and I won't cover most of them now. You'll have to wait for my pharmacology podcast, but I'll mention one, which is codeine. And codeine has an anti-cough or antitussive effect because it inhibits parts of this reflex arc. Burning question number two. What does that little thingy with the red light that gets clipped on my finger actually do? So if you've ever been to the hospital or to emergency, often you'll get a little clip placed on your finger. And that little thingy or clip is also known as a pulse oximeter, or pulse ox for short. What it tells you is the SpO2, or peripheral capillary oxygen saturation. Keep in mind that most oxygen in your blood is carried by hemoglobin, or at least about 90% of it. Each hemoglobin molecule can carry four oxygen. To better visualize what oxygen saturation is all about, let's imagine we have 100 hemoglobins in a tiny bucket. Theoretically, we could bind 400 oxygen molecules to those hemoglobins. And if this happens, we would find that blood is 100% saturated with oxygen. However, several factors can affect whether in fact that happens. For example, what if someone is hypoventilating or underbreathing? Or in another scenario, someone might not be getting good gas exchange due to lung disease. In either case, hypoxemia, or low partial pressure of oxygen in blood, might occur. And a little sidebar here, anytime you hear emia at the end of a word, it likely has something to do with blood. So let's return to our bucket analogy, or bucket of hemoglobin. And let's say that in a hypoxemic state, you've only got 300 oxygen molecules attached to those 100 hemoglobins. That would work out to only 75% saturation, or an SpO2 of 75. This is decidedly not good. And clinically, we like to see an SpO2, or SATs as they're sometimes called, at 95% or better in, in most cases. Although this number can vary depending on age and other conditions. So how does our little measurement device, or pulse ox, measure this saturation? It's actually a neat trick. Binding of oxygen to hemoglobin changes the spectral or color properties of blood. You've all 
likely seen somewhere that oxygenated or arterial blood looks brighter red than venous or deoxygenated blood. And this is the result of the binding of oxygen hemoglobin. The pulse ox uses two wavelengths of light, red and infrared, and these light beams are sent through the capillary bed of your fingernail. The ratio of each wavelength of light that is transmitted to a sensor on the other side of your finger can be taken as a measure of the SpO2, or peripheral capillary oxygen saturation. Unless, of course, the monitor falls off and the nurses and doctors come running. Burning question number three. How long can I hold my breath? What is the record? You know, I'm not sure how many times students have asked me this question or why. But here goes. According to the most current Guinness World Records that I can find, the longest recorded time a male has voluntarily held his breath and survived more or less intact is 24 minutes, 3.45 seconds, a record set by Alex Segura Vendrell in 2016. Wait, what? How is that even possible? For starters, Alex accomplished this incredible feat by using an oxygen assist. He supersaturated his blood with oxygen by breathing pure oxygen, and filled his lungs to maximal capacity. He also consumed as little oxygen as possible by immersing himself in cold water and remaining motionless. Even so, the ability to do this for as long as he did can only be achieved by training. And during that training, your body can actually adapt to hypoxemia. A number of anatomic and physiologic factors that are hardwired also play a role, such as having an innately larger lung capacity and a slower metabolism. I don't generally recommend this practice of breath holding, since these long periods of apnea, or not breathing, can cause CO2 to build up in blood. And a buildup of CO2 in your blood is a condition called hypercapnia. Remember that, although you may not be breathing, your cells still are. So, while you're holding your breath, your cells continue to consume oxygen from metabolism and produce acids that can result in acidemia, and there's that emia suffix again, and most of the painful signs and symptoms that occur as a result of hypercapnia and acidemia, including muscle cramps and lightheadedness, are the result of the buildup of acids and CO2. Furthermore, that initial hyperoxygenation that Alex engaged in before his record-breaking attempt can actually be quite harmful. And if you'd like to learn more about that story, stay tuned to my podcast on free radicals. As a little aside, there is an ancient but dwindling practice engaged in by traditional female Japanese pearl divers called the AMA. Dating back about 2,000 to 3,000 years ago, these women engaged in free diving, or diving without breathing gear, to depths as deep as 25 to 30 meters. And they were doing this to collect oysters. Women would often begin training for this work at the age of 12, and some even continued to dive late into their 70s and even their 80s. They would spend as much as two hours each morning underwater. And from these women, we've learned about some remarkable physiologic and anatomic adaptations that can occur as a result of such diving and breath holding. And these include an enlarged spleen, which serves as a reservoir for oxygen-carrying red blood cells, as well as having an increased hematocrit, or increased blood cell numbers. Burning question number four. Why do people hyperventilate? And why is that bad? Well, this is pretty much the opposite of what we've just been speaking about. 
Hyperventilation is an increased respiratory rate in excess of what you need, and for which there may be several causes. Panic or pain responses are among the more typical reasons why people hyperventilate, in which case the sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system gets activated, and this increases the activity of neurons in the apneustic area of the brain. However, other causes such as anemia, heart failure, infection, and asthma can also increase respiratory rate. And in these instances, such increases can be viewed as a compensatory response to hypoxemia. Rather than having hypercapnia or high blood CO2 and acidemia, low blood pH, as was the case with our divers and our breath-holding friend Alex, somebody who is hyperventilating would experience hypocapnia, low blood CO2, and alkalemia, which is high blood pH. One of the bigger problems for somebody who's hyperventilating is the change in blood chemistry, particularly the alkalemia, or the tendency of blood to be more alkaline. In the bad old days, I was taught that if somebody is hyperventilating, you get them to rebreathe into a paper bag, thereby increasing CO2. This is not always a good idea, as you can trigger blood pH to shoot the other way, becoming, in fact, acidemic. And keep in mind that neither acidemia nor alkalemia are particularly good for you. Instead, better options for reducing the effects of hyperventilation include pursed lip breathing and other methods of breathing control or relaxation. And so we've come to the end of our recitation on respiration. Are you feeling breathless with bravado? Or have I left you apneic with apathy? Whichever the case, I would encourage you all, dear listeners, to breathe easy. Dr. Bill, signing off for now. 